Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, neuroscience. It's STEM for those of us who always wanted to try the eyewash station in chemistry class just once. <laughs> A water fountain for the eyes. <laughs> For some reason, that's making me think about all the times that I've lost a contact lens. Do you ever wear contacts? I try, and then they get lost. Yes. <laughs> Gillian, what's new with you this week? You know, I'm feeling kind of inspired by our interview with Kenji Lopez-All to try cooking. So my friend Rachel Antonoff has a clothing line, and she's been doing this really cool thing where she's also making videos for her website— um, and so she did a video featuring this really cool chef, Paola Velez, in which she is making a panna cotta. Uh, um, so I was thinking, what if I actually try and make this? And the other fun tie-in is that in the video, Chef Velez is wearing a dress by my friend Rachel that features images of toast and jam and all these delicious looking foods. So I thought... What if I try and recreate this video where I get the dress that she's wearing in the video and I try to make Chef Velez's panna cotta recipe? Ooh, I'm excited you're going to try to make this. Panna cotta can be pretty advanced. It's a fair point. I, <laughs> I've been told before that maybe I should start with simpler recipes rather than diving into the deep end of cooking and baking. But I don't know. Maybe I'll just try and make a panna cotta. Let me know when you do. I do feel like we should explain what a panna cotta is, which is a panna cotta is generally, um, it's Italian, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a, a creamy dairy-based dessert that has a, a gelatin-like uh, feel. Like think of it as being a mousse with a little bit more structure because it yes. has usually gelatin in it. Exactly. I saw her as I was watching the video. I was like, oh, that's one thing I definitely need to purchase that I've never bought before are the the clear gelatin strips yes. that I have seen in other cooking videos, but I've never used before. So that'll be new for me. Um, oh, I'm so excited for you. You're going to get to bloom gelatin for the first time. <laughs> How about you? What's going on? Well, it's so funny that you wanted to uh, tell me a cooking thing because this week I was like, I'm going to learn a, a, a bird fact for Gillian. Oh, we switched. We did. We really did. I was like, oh, that's so funny that we literally switched. I did find a real science bug story for Ooh. you, which is I learned about something called uh, Demodex mites, <gasps> which are tiny mites that live in our eyelashes. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not that everybody, uh, you people can't see. We're on a Zoom right now. Hi. Every person from Gillian to our producer, they've <laughs> all buried their hands in their face. Everyone's upset. But this is part of our natural biome. It's it's good. It's like it's good. As, long, as long as we don't have too many, it's okay. So they're little tiny microscopic mites. They don't hurt. 
<laughs> no one's thrilled Tamika's about this story. horrified. <laughs> horrified. Um, but the mites, during the day, they just burrow into your eyelash follicles and they sleep. And then at night, they come out and they eat the oil that's on your eyelid. We so need them. A, yeah, so we need them so that we don't have excess oil. But if we have excess oil, we make more mites. So it's a thing. So it's a cycle. So wipe your eyes is what I'm saying. But it's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, if I really start to think about all the microbes that are probably living on my body and in this closet, uh, remind me to vacuum this weekend. It's a big old party is what I'm saying. <laughs> You're never alone. You're never You've always alone. got a mite on you. And some of them can survive in space like tardigrades. Have we ever mm-hmm. talked about those on this podcast? I can't remember. No, I don't think we have. Should I say instead of uh, you never alone, should I say you might have a friend? Is that better? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Skin crawling. Sorry. I thought it was interesting. Sorry, I think it's sorry. interesting, too. You know what? They, they've always been there. We just didn't know it. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's tell everyone about this week's episode. Yes. For story time, we'll be joined by Brie Larson. You may know her as Captain Marvel and Jesse Ennis from the show Mythic Quest. But first, we've got an interview with Indre Viscontis. She's a professionally trained opera singer who still performs with a Ph.D. in cognitive neuroscience. Yes, she teaches at the University of San Francisco and her research focuses on how music affects the brain. Very cool. All right. Now let's get into our interview with Indre Viscontis. Okay, so you have uh, studied music and neuroscience for a long time. How did each one come into your life? My mom, being a choir conductor, was like, you know, you need to be in a choir. It's what it's what we do. Uh, and so <laughs> as soon as I was old enough to audition, she put me in front of uh, the choir director of the most prestigious choir in Toronto. I, we grew up in Toronto, the Toronto Children's Chorus. And wow. she was like super scary, this woman. Um, her name was Bartle. Very scary woman. <laughs> and she made me sight read and like do all these things. And I was probably like five and I bombed it like I no idea. And she was like, sorry, you can go in the like, you know, wannabe choir. Did you and then I, I got Wait, did you bomb it or were you five? I was I was yes, five. Okay. Okay. I was five. But I yeah, sight reading at five? But I was not a prodigy, like right? Like I probably right. like was so nervous I didn't even pitch match. You know, I mean it was like it was probably I did not show any particular talent, mm-hmm. let's put it that way. Okay. But there was this other choir called the Canadian Children's Opera Chorus, where all the misfits went. <laughs> all the theater kids, all the ones with behavioral problems that, like, couldn't make it in the button-down Toronto Children's Chorus. Like, all the ones who, you know, had, yeah, had issues, went and auditioned for the Canadian Children's Opera Chorus, and they embraced me. <laughs> um, and so I just found my people. And when I was 11, um, they cast me as an altar boy in Tusca on the main stage of the Canadian Opera Company. And that's, like, the biggest opera company in Canada. So it was a big production. It was a big production. I got to run around on stage, this big stage, big orchestra, amazing singers. And then one night they handed me a check for like $900. Whoa. And and they said this is because it's going to be on national television. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, why wouldn't anybody do this? This is awesome. (laughs) All right. So that's your relationship to music. What about neuroscience? Okay. So in... In high school, uh, I 
did well in the maths and sciences. And um, I came from an immigrant family. And so, you know, how I was going to pay for college, it was going to be on scholarship. And I knew I could get a scholarship to study the sciences. I I didn't know I could get one to study music, you know, (laughs) going back to my first uh, audition as a (laughs) five-year-old that that stayed with me. I was like, well, no one's going to give me money to study music. So so I started with a degree in psychology at the University of Toronto with a very scientific bent, you know. And so that's how it started. And then after I finished my bachelor's, I um, just decided I, I just wanted to sing. So I took a year off and moved to London because, you know, <laughs> why not? And yeah. I worked at the opera house there <laughs> six nights a week. I was an usher making six pounds an hour, but I was immersed in opera six nights a week. And that also demonstrated to me that if I wanted to make a living as a professional musician, I still had a lot of training ahead of me. And then somehow I had to pay for it because even though I was working a lot, six pounds a week or six pounds an hour was not paying for, you know, my tiny attic apartment in London and still leaving enough room for music lessons. So um, I, that's when I did the PhD in, in neuroscience. This sounds totally <laughs> stupid. Uh, this is my 22-year-old self making this, this calculation. Oh, it'll be just like undergrad. I'll have lots of time <laughs> <laughs> to train my voice. Um, turns out I was wrong. Uh, so I finished the PhD, and then I went and got my master's in music and you know, spent those years. And it was there that I started to see the connections between music and the brain. For us to like zoom out a bit on your now your your life's work, you've got this incredible mixture of neurology and music as part of your life, and so I feel like you're uniquely suited to answer the question: What does music do to our brain? <laughs> you know, it, this is something that I've been really thinking about for a while, but for a long time, actually, I didn't want to answer this question because I thought it would take away some of the magic of music. Mm. You know, to me, music mm. had this special role and neuroscience is what I did, you know, with the rest of my brain. But music, I, I wanted to hold on to. Um, and then and then I there was a, a moment where I read a paper about exactly that. What is how, how does music affect our brains? And it changed the way I sing because it showed me how some of the tools that really great singers use are, are effective because of how the brain responds to music. Um, mm. The the kind of you know caveat to all of this is of course music is a tool that we use for different purposes right like we use it sometimes to make ourselves feel better to connect with others sometimes we play music um, sometimes we just listen some you know we use it to work out and any way in which you are using music in a, in a different way is going to have a different signature on your brain my singing teacher used to always say um indre indre it's not the high note that matters it's all the notes leading up to the high note and i'd be like no, come on. That's not true. Like, if I miss the high note, I'm not going to get paid. The audience is going to hate me. So I'm going to focus on getting that high note. And, uh, you know, we call them money notes, right? We call them money notes for, for a reason. So you mentioned uh, a paper that changed how you sing. Can you tell us about that? One day I was reading this paper um, by Valerie Salampour and her mentor, uh, Robert Satori from Montreal, and they were basically tracking a neurotransmitter called dopamine in the brain while people Mm. were listening to music. So dopamine, you know, people think of it as like the reward chemical. It's the chemical that kind of feel good chemicals. It's a little more complicated than that. I kind of call it like the salience or the meaning chemical because it's higher Mm. in our brains even when we're feeling really bad. 
right? So it's not just rewarding. It's like, is something important happening? <laughs> that's what dope means active. And that's important to know if you really want to understand the results of the study, because what they did is they had uh, people in the brain scanner and, and they had a way of tracking the amount of dopamine in different parts of the brain. And they had them listening to music that gives them the chills, right? This like physiological response, like goosebumps. I don't know if you've ever gotten it from music. Absolutely. But yeah, it's like a very physical reaction. And that's great for science because we can see that and then measure it. And we know exactly <laughs> when it happens. So anyway, so they would figure out exactly when the chills were happening. And then they'd go back in the music a few measures um, about and, and look what was happening in the brain when the, the, uh, when the chills were about to happen. And when you look at the results of the study, what they found is that dopamine was higher in a part of the brain that is really responsible for tracking what in the environment is going to be rewarding. It's called the caudate nucleus. And basically, it's the part of your brain um, that is, is keeping track of things that will lead to either good or bad outcomes. Um, and it was higher during the, the anticipation phase, but not during the actual chills. Hmm. And the higher the dopamine was in that nucleus during that anticipation phase, essentially the hot, the better the experience was, right? The, the more likely you were to get the chills. Hmm. So as I was watching this, I realized my teacher was exactly right. Hmm. If you don't set up the high note, it doesn't matter how good it is. <laughs> you hmm. got to build that tension. You got to build that anticipation. Hmm. And so it changed the way I sing. It's so cool. And I was thinking about the times that I've used music as an actor, you know, especially if if it's a particularly emotional scene and maybe I don't show up to work that day feeling like I'm in that that headspace or that emotional state. I have definitely found there are certain songs that I've I listen to them. They really help me get there and I will listen to them over and over and over again. But I don't quite know why that works. I just I know that it does. I, uh, when I was writing on a show early in my writing career, I asked a coworker if he listened to anything to write because I was looking for new writing music. Mm -hmm. And he said, I listened to the Red Hot Chili Peppers Snow, the karaoke version on repeat. That's what I do. Wait, why, why the karaoke version? Yeah, I do not know. <laughs> I do not know. But you know what? Honestly, I do it sometimes. I just put one song, the karaoke version on, and I just write for hours. I mean, I listen to that song over and over because at that point it kind of becomes a lull. Mm. But I'll tell you one thing. It is not the Red Hot Chili Peppers snow. I'll tell you that. Sorry, Peppers. Okay, so... Now we want to start playing songs to talk through the musical techniques mm. and how they affect the brain. So first, let's talk about the audio drop in one particular song, DJ Snake's Turn Down For What? It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. yeah. Almost. And if you don't have yeah. that moment of silence before the drop, it's not as effective, right? Like, that's that's exactly right. I actually never noticed that until just now. There really is that silence, and you just hear that reverb 
you know, of mm-hmm. what's come previously. And, and then and then that uh, contrasted with that silence is really great. It does build that moment of expectation. And there's that ascending scale that, that comes in before that's telling you we're going somewhere, we're going somewhere, we're going somewhere. Mm. And, you know, that's exactly right. All the notes that's before so the cool. high note. <laughs> That's so it's so wild to think of that applied not only, you know, to opera, to these, um, you know, these particular songs that I think are structured a certain way, but to look and be like, no, that's probably all music. It's a very universal thing. Yeah. Like James Taylor said, music is just tension and release. And mm-hmm. and that's and that's this whole system. And, and we see that. And uh, yeah, there you go. We're going to play uh, a song by Bach, uh, Prelude in F minor. BWV 857. And we're going to talk about the connection between math and music. Would love to hear Hmm. that. Yeah, beautiful piece. You know, a lot of people talk about Bach as being, you know, one of the greatest composers. I feel like that's very white and Eurocentric, personally. <laughs> also, everybody knows it was Mozart. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I think it's uh, DJ Snake. So different, different <laughs> um, But there's a reason why Bach has continued to be loved. I think uh, across centuries, and part of it is because it is. It does seem like it's very mathematical, but it has this emotional information to it. So. If you listen to Bach, um, eventually you start to hear these patterns. If you don't, some people hear it on their first listen. For some people, it requires a lifetime of study. Um, but you can hear all of these different patterns in you know, the counterpoint and the way that the notes go together, and they kind of fit like a puzzle in, in these different mm. but slightly unexpected ways. Um, so you think it's going to go in one direction, and then he twists it, but it still makes sense, but it's now kind of going in another direction. But it's still, it's like imagine a kind of you know, like a Rubik's Cube or a puzzle that has a lot of pieces, but they always seem to go together in the right way. And I think that that's very appealing to a lot of people, and especially when you can tie it to an emotion um, where there's something to say that, you know. So I think it's it's about extracting these layers of meaning, um, which I think also is really what's wonderful about math, right? Math is a way of, like, predicting, (laughs) of understanding, of seeing patterns in a chaotic world and of trying to understand how all of these things fit together. I was thinking about the harmonies in music um, Hmm. and singing, and maybe that's like one component of these puzzle pieces, because I'm not good at singing harmonies. It makes me very nervous <laughs> in the same oh. way that singing. When we talk about math equations, I get very nervous. It's a similar <laughs> feeling. <laughs> yeah. Harmony. You know, people who can harmonize. Hey, I admire you. I got to be honest. I, it, it's just people start singing and I'm like, where am I going? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. Like, I just I panic. I'm just like I just end up l- trying to match someone else. Then I'm throwing them. Off. Oh, what a mess. I got to be honest, as someone who loves puzzles Uh and someone who really does love music, um, I wish that my brain worked in a way where I could visualize parts of a song like a puzzle piece. It's Mm -hmm. just not right now how I'm trained. Um, So I don't I I don't quite have the same feeling that she has, but I believe her. I believe her as well. Okay, we talked a little bit about repetition. We're going to play a song that is. Very repetitive and very easy to get caught in our ears. And I'm going to ask, 
<laughs> to Mika to play as little of this song as possible in order just enough for us to recognize the song. <laughs> oh, oh no, oh no. Part of the interview we've been dreading. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thank you. Right. <laughs> Why does this song oh, the baby get shark. stuck in our minds so easily? Yeah, so there are a couple of reasons. Um, well, for one thing, why is it so popular? <laughs> um, <laughs> so young children are just starting to learn how to process music. And so they like repetition, the wheels on the bus, you know, over and over. And they love repetition because that's how their brains are learning. That's how they're wiring up. So they're actually mm. geared to to look for it. That's why you have to read the same book over and over and over and over again, Like, right? <laughs> Kids love repetition. So they love this song for that reason. Why do adults get super bored? Because <laughs> as you develop a musical taste, you need more complexity to stay interested. Mm. If it's too simple, you're bored, right? There's this like sweet spot of like, you know, you want a little bit of complexity, you want a little mystery, you know, you want a little bit of like a little something to do. Your brain wants to search for more meaning. And if there's no more meaning to be had, it's not interested anymore. Mm. But the reason that it's Days in our heads, even after it's <laughs> over, is because it's never really over. These kinds of songs that are very effective at creating what we call earworms, right? Like these little stuck song, stuck, stuck snippets of songs that get stuck in our ears. They don't resolve. <laughs> and so, like, right? It just, 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 just a key change, right? It's, <laughs> it just gets higher. And even more annoying, right? There's no, like, and big finish. Oh. There's no... There's no payoff. There's no that There's drop, no drop. What you're talking about. It's just build and build and build and That's build. That's right. And so what you need no to relief. do if you have an earworm is create your own finish. Like, finish the song. Like, come and make it a big, like, ta-da! We're done. That's a great... You know what? And that's true because when it's in my head, it is like this never-ending, constantly mm-hmm. raising in pitch thing. <laughs> okay, I'm... I refuse to let this song be stuck in my head all day. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's going to be fine because we're going to play more music. And that is the great cure for the earworm. And if nothing else fails, we can come up with our own ending for Baby Shark and resolve it. I'm fine with that, actually. That's (laughs) the one time I'll harmonize with you. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's take a short break and more from our music playlist when we come back. Okay, and we are back. Let's go back to our little playlist, and um, we'll play an example, um, which is the song Hello by Adele. And the question that this evokes for me is, why does music evoke emotion in us? Hello, it's me. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet. To go over. I got the chills. I got the goosebumps that in response you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean she's she's such a good vocalist. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's there's so much information in every sound that comes out of her mouth, right? Um, okay, so there are, there are a number of things going on. One thing when there's repetition. Um, which you hear that, you hear that in the chords, you hear that in her melody, you hear that even in the words that she's saying. So repetition teaches your, or tells your brain, 
that there's something beyond the superficial aspects of the sounds that is worth listening for because we don't repeat things mm. if they're not me- if they're meaningless, right? Mm. And if there's repetition, there's a pattern, and we're interested in patterns. Like, what is the pattern? We want to you know know what's going to happen in the future, and if we know the pattern, we'll we can predict what's coming next. But in this case, the the repetition also is meaningful from an emotional you know part, right? So our brains kind of cue into that. And then one thing that happens when we listen to music that is moving to us um, is that our brains are trying to mirror the activity of what's happening in the brain of the musician performing. So we literally see um, similar brain region activation when we're listening compared to when the musicians are performing. Mm. Um, and it depends on, I mean, the more the more close you are, like if you're a pianist listening to another pianist playing, the greater the overlap, because you can also then understand like what it would feel like in the hands. Or, or if you're a vocalist, you're listening to another singer, you actually can feel little vocal articulations that you are doing. I mean, so when you hear a singer not sing well, and they're like using a lot of tension, a lot of singers like, it hurts, like it physically feels painful, because we constrict our, our throats, you know, because we know what that would huh. feel like. So there's this mirroring activity that happens. And this mirroring is a way for you to understand the emotions, intents and beliefs of another person. It's part of our how we develop what's called theory of mind, this idea that we understand. So so music is very effective at at triggering this type of understanding in us. But then, you know, it also makes us feel something visceral, right? As you were, you just said, you got the chills. And the chills, you know, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a bit of a complexity to it. But just to sort of su- superficially say, we think that the chills might be your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight response being activated, but in a safe context. So you know there's no bear, (laughs) right? There's no bear. Um, But you feel uh, Adele's pain there. And so you get this kind of sympathetic nervous system response, but it's safe. So in a way, that's cathartic. And, you know, as we know, theater is really about catharsis, right? It's about, like exploring what would happen if this, you know, and then, you know, kind of feeling that release when you realize, like, that you understand it now. And so I think that's part of it. Um, But then, of course, fundamentally, we can hear things in the voice that are emotional that go beyond words. Um, And that's why I Mm -hmm. say when it comes to vocal expressions of emotion, it's really not about what you say. It's about how you say it. Right. Like even when you're a baby and, you know, your mother or your, your caregiver or whoever's around you says something to you, they don't know the words. They know the tone. Mm. <laughs> right. Is it a happy tone? Is it an angry tone? Is it a fearful tone? So we're very attuned uh, to reading emotions in the human voice. And that's why especially mm. sung music um, can can elicit, you know, very strong emotional reactions in us. OK, so this one we want to play a clip uh, from I Will Always Love You. Mm performed by Whitney Houston. And the question I have is, why is music so tied to memory? So, I mean, I have so many memories of hearing this song and, you know, songs like this can take you back to a time and a place in your life. And I will always love you Yeah, there's so many reasons why this song is so effective um, in in so many different Mm -hmm. ways. I mean, a brilliant musician, um, you know, again, so much 
richness, meaning in every sound that you mm-hmm. hear. Mm-hmm. The memory part of it, too, um, there, there are a number of reasons why I think music is such a powerful mnemonic. Um, one is that it is very good at eliciting emotions. Mm. And we remember things that elicited our emotions. That's another very evolutionary mm. thing. Like if something good or bad happened to you and it made you feel something, your brain wants, your caudate nucleus is going to be like, <laughs> keep track of that because that's information that we need to know about, you know, what to do in the future. So that's a part of it. And then, of course, there's this repetition and this pattern. I mean, this is why we learn the alphabet by singing the ABCs. Mm. <laughs> it's a way mm. of tagging information into a pattern that we can then use to remember that information. And then finally, so much of the music that we love today happened in this very formative time in our teenage years, um, early adulthood, when we were figuring out who we were, we were figuring out our own identity. So it was very important to how we tell like our own narrative about ourselves, like who we are. Um, And so I think that's another reason why it holds such a special place. You know, it probably was very comforting for us at a time that was very tumultuous. And so, you know, that's that's why. Is there a song uh, that evokes any memories for you, a time and a place? Yeah, my dad, uh, my dad passed away and he used to have a song for each of his kids that he liked oh. to sing. I think that's pretty common with a lot of parents. And his for me was uh, Leanne Womack's I Hope You Dance. Oh. And so that's, uh, I like, uh, gross emotions. I feel myself getting choked up. I can't that's believe I'm beautiful. having emotions right now. Um, but that song always makes me think of him. And because he could not, ugh, I hate this. <laughs> I, feel, I hate having emotions. Uh, he couldn't walk me down the aisle, obviously, because he had passed. So we had that song play so that it was like he was walking me down the aisle. That's really beautiful. Emotions. I hate it. Um, anyway, what about you? Well, mine's not nearly as profound or moving as that. I, uh, Please I've... be something for Barney. Please. <laughs> I could. <laughs> well, I definitely remember watching a lot of Barney while babysitting. So I, I do. <laughs> um, and uh, no, I was thinking there's this Eric Satie piece. But I remember listening to this song and it was the perfect first warm night of like spring or early summer mm. and I went to college in New York and it was like that end of the winter where it was so cold for so long and it was that first night where it's like still warm after the sun goes down and it's just that like perfect temperature before it gets too hot and I was sitting outside listening to that song and I started crying <laughs> But I have a very vivid memory and I associate that music with like the first warm night of like late spring, early summer. That sounds wonderful. What's the song like? I'll play a little bit. And and isn't it so funny that we can have these vivid emotions and memories attached to a song and then I'm going to play it for you. You're going to be like, that makes you cry. this song I love that song I know I didn't know that was Eric Satie yeah I just you know I don't know why I was listening to it but I spent a lot of time sitting by myself places during college so I guess I was just outside listening to some Satie keeping all these things that we've talked about in mind um 
why do we use music to manipulate our emotions? Oh, because it's so effective. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, I think it, it is it's and people use it strategically to rile up crowds. Right. Mm. And, you know, mm. get people to do things they normally wouldn't do under, under other circumstances because it's that powerful. Um, but there's also, I think, the other one of the other kind of scientific explanations that I really like and that that resonates with me. Um, is this like, why do we listen to sad songs when we're sad? And why does that feel good? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. part of the answer uh, <laughs> seems to be related to this, well, it's a safe space for which you can work through some of these emotions and get some catharsis and, you know, get to some of this, like, that release that, that you want. But there's also a hormone involved that I think is really interesting, which is when we listen to sad music, mm-hmm. um, we see higher levels of the hormone prolactin, Um, which is involved in making tears. Uh, And this is why a good cry feels good. Uh, but, but, But there is this sense of, like, comfort that you get after a good cry. You know, usually if we're doing it intentionally, we're doing it in a space where it's okay if we have these emotions and it's okay for us to cry, and then we feel better because it's been resolved. Wow. Well, uh, I think our, our last question, I would love to hear about a time that music has made you feel something that you maybe couldn't articulate or explain. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have to be um, when my son was born and um, we had a really, he had a rough, I had a rough pregnancy and then I had a rough delivery and then he was in the NICU and it was like not at all what I thought it was going to be right I thought it was going to be this like beautiful easy thing and I was going to sit at home and you know do all have this all wonderful rest time and then he just wouldn't sleep and it was like months in and I just was like trying everything I could do to get him to sleep and I just started singing him some of the songs that I had sung because I performed all the way up until uh until you know about a month before I gave birth and so this, there was one set of songs in particular that I had I had recorded. So he had, he had heard in the womb a, a long time, a lot of times. And I just started singing that. And it just seemed it was so much more effective than anything else I could have done. Oh, wow. All the, you know, shushing and swaying and dancing around and, you know, breast. Like nothing was working. He would not go to sleep. But this one piece, I just and it's not very like. It's not a lullaby by any means. It's like, it's huh. called, you know, Chanson Perpetuelle. It's like this hundred year old song. So it's not, you know, but I, but I had sung it so many times and I think it was really familiar to him and he knew it was emotional for me. And like, it just, I, yeah, it was just this moment when I started to realize how music it, it can just connect and has this other kind of power. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that sort of changed my relationship with him it changed my relationship with why I sing up until then it was really I'm a performer um and then it was like no I I sing because of this because it you know calms him and and gives us peace and you know we can feel like we're two humans in this world I love that story thank you so much yeah thank you so much for being on our podcast oh it's such a pleasure so fun to talk to you (laughs) That was great. Okay, let's take one last break. And then I'm about to get nostalgic, y'all. We got a story all about kites. Yes, and we'll be joined by special guests Brie Larson and Jesse Ennis. Stick around. (laughs) 
Okay, we're back, and it's story time. Yes, it is story time, and we have some extra special guests this week. We have not one special guest, but we have two. Would you like to introduce them, Gillian? Yes, we have Jesse Ennis and Brie Larson. Hi! Thank you for having us. Brie and Jesse have a great new podcast called Learning Lots that you can hear us on, and they are currently going to be our story time storytellers. <laughs> Thank you for being here. It's so thrilling. And we we got a little bit of intel about some maybe STEM-related moments from both of your lives. Um, Brie, I heard that you cried really hard making a lightsaber at Disneyland. <laughs> Is this true? That doesn't Is even cut. That's that's like an uh, that doesn't even cover it. She was sobbing. <laughs> she was. <laughs> I cried really hard. Okay, so Galaxy's Edge opened, and uh, Jesse and I got to go to the opening of it, which was extremely emotional in and of itself. And then we discovered <laughs> that there's this. We're just just our minds are blown. You know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Dream come true. Um, And I was crying a lot anyway. And then we discovered that you can make a reservation to make your own custom lightsaber, which is just like it was hitting this peak where we were just like, "Ah!" like everything was like we were like children, just like sugar high. They had food and drinks and all this stuff. We're just like it was we were a mess. And um, so we went in to do this thing. And I won't say too much about it because I think it's maybe the most special thing happening at Disneyland. And I think that says a lot because Disneyland is a very special place. It is magical. And if you're a huge Star Wars fan, it will will hit deep. And I cried so hard through the whole thing. It hit me deep. And um, I thought I was, you know, in a safe space to do so. And then (laughs) um, many months later, I was at a party, a fancy party where I was trying to be a fancy person. And a woman came up to me and she said, excuse me, did you cry really hard making a lightsaber at Disneyland? Uh And I was like, yes, how do you know? She's like, oh, my son was actually next to you. He said that you were sobbing very loudly. And (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, and I didn't feel any shame because I went, oh, I know your son. He was the one that brought his Chewbacca Chewbacca action figure from when he was a kid. I have a lot in common with him. He was very emotional, too. And she was like, oh, yeah. And she was super cool about it. I immediately was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this has spread, that I (laughs) cried making this. But um, I have my lightsaber right behind me as a carrying case. And um, I don't know if that's nerdy. I feel like that's normal. but That's normal. It's normal. It's great. But it's enthusiastic. Yeah. There's a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) that's what we love. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) I also have an enthusiastic story. I was just about to ask, please. <laughs> so um, most people for their senior prom are excited <laughs> it's about gonna be good. I know it's gonna going be good. to prom. Uh, you know, you like get a group together. Maybe you find a prom date. You wear a prom dress. You go to a party. Sometimes senior prom leads to like trying alcohol. I did um, none of that. I I did I, I went to senior prom. I, I made a point to do that, but I had a go bag with me with um, you know comfortable clothes and a Crazy Creek chair because oh. around one a.m. after my prom, I asked my mom to pick me up and drive me to the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, and I camped out on the sidewalk in front of their box office like a deadhead. But for Flight of the Concords, <laughs> like I thought they were the coolest. I happened to be the only person who thought it was wise to line up at two in the morning 
<laughs> and I slept on the sidewalk. Uh, I remember my mom was like, you're safe. This is going to be just fine. And then around <laughs> like 10 a.m., she brought me a breakfast burrito and I got great tickets. And uh, and that was thrilling. But I, I to this day, that's my memory of my senior prom, not partying with my peers, but going and, and really camping out for those tickets that no one else camped out to get. Oh, I love it. <laughs> the, the funniest. That's the funniest. Should we get to the story? Absolutely. Yes. This is a story all about kites. They seem so simple, maybe because we're introduced to them as kids. I mean, it is a fun art project. But you can also learn so much about design, history, and physics. Kites are a really incredible invention. Yes, people fly them across the globe. They've been a big part of our world for centuries. So there's a couple of ways we could get into the story. We could talk about the cultural relevance, how kites transformed into a tool for leisure, ceremony, and storytelling. And then there's the scientific lens, the mechanics of kites, what we know about their origins and how people use them in scientific experiments, leading us to even more inventions. Kites are basically the foundation to our understanding of aerodynamics. Let's start there with the science stuff. Perfect. I'd love to start there. (laughs) (laughs) Kites come in a range of styles, but in general, they have three basic components. The first is some sort of winged surface or another shape that will allow it to gain lift from a breeze. The second is a line or tether, that string you hold to keep the kite from being blown away. And the third, I didn't know what this was called before, but you need a bridle. That's a connection point on the string or tether. It keeps the face of the kite at an angle to the wind. Ah, that takes me back some years, unwrapping a brand new kite in the spring, taking it outside, and trying to get the kite at just the right angle so the wind lifts it up to the sky. Because even as a kid, you can tell that kites are designed to find balance. There are four basic components of flight. Lift, weight, drag, and thrust. Lift forces it up, weight pushes it down, drag forces it backwards, and thrust allows you to create motion. So the kite goes in the direction you want it to go. If you get the balance just right, well, then your kite is steady and flying. We don't really know who flew the very first kites, but they probably were invented in Asia. Early descriptions of kite flying date all the way back to 200 B.C., And those writings were found in China. We're not sure if that's where kites were invented, but kites were definitely popular in ancient China. Mm -hmm. It's possible that some version of a kite may have been invented in more than one area of Asia. But either way, kites eventually spread to other areas through trade. Somewhere around the 14th and 15th century, kite flying made its way into Europe. Kites are kind of magical. They're simple yet mesmerizing, and more than a little versatile. People use them to ward off evil, deliver messages, conduct tests. Of course, one of the most talked-about experiments involving kites was by Benjamin Franklin. During a thunderstorm in 1752, he proved that lightning is electricity. Then, by the 1800s, you've got an inventor in the UK experimenting with, well, adding a pair of kites to the top of a chariot. That way, the chariot kind of glides, creating momentum as it goes. He called it a charvalunt. (laughs) Charvalunt. Yes. Beautiful. Sounds like a Pokemon. (laughs) And then, yes, it does sound like a Pokemon. Ah. And then by the... (laughs) It's a new form of Charizard we never knew about. (laughs) (laughs) 
By the 1850s, Sir George Cayley took his experiments closer to the realm of inventing flying machines. That's when he used modified kites to make a person glide through the air. This was a precursor to modern-day gliders. Some decades later, the Wright brothers were playing with and testing kites. Eventually, it led to inventing the first airplane prototype. It all started with kites. Yep. A lot of our basic understanding of flight comes from one of the most simple yet versatile inventions ever. Now, normally we try to give a reading recommendation or something you can watch to find out more. But hey, if the weather is nice where you live, maybe think about going outside and flying a kite this weekend. Or just listen to the rest of this episode and commit to doing nothing this weekend. That's cool, too. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, this is a really special episode. You know what? I was thinking back to our conversation about neuroscience earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. And I think that Oliver Sacks is really the reason I got so interested in neuroscience and really sparked my adulthood curiosity in STEM, if I think about it. So maybe in an indirect way, he's partly responsible for this podcast. Huh. And He lived such an incredible life. I would recommend anyone who has been fascinated by what we're talking about to check out his book, Musicophilia. Uh, It it goes into so much more about music and the brain. Uh, Just an amazing book. For me, uh, the really cool thing about this episode is just learning that the thing that I want to do naturally, which is use music to express emotion, even if it's not my music, is a very natural thing, that there's a, a scientific basis for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's totally cool that when I feel sad, I just want to like listen to dudes with long hair wail on guitars. <laughs> 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 Okay, it is time to read some reviews. Who's reading this one, me or you? I'll take it. It's from V-E-H-V-T. I have been recommending this podcast to everyone I know or come in contact with, especially all my friends who are raising young girls. The interviews are really interesting and educational. I love the stories at the end about an important but maybe unknown historical figure. Plus, there's a bunch of surprising, super cool facts thrown in. My daughter, seven years old, and I look forward to listening together each week. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's uh, that's so great. Um, I also love the idea of recommending this podcast to everyone. Like you're checking out at the grocery store. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? You're placing an order for a pizza. I just do it. Tell everybody. Tell everybody. Yes. And it really reminds me of listening to the radio in the car with my mom growing up. Oh. So I love that. Does your mom like this podcast? She does. She really likes this podcast. And she has been telling everyone she knows to listen. So (laughs) my mom, too. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments on the show. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.